Today on episode number 506 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, how to use high-structure course design to heighten learning with Justin Schaefer. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Justin Schaefer is the Associate Dean of Undergraduate Studies and a teaching professor in chemical and biological engineering and in quantitative biosciences and engineering at the Colorado School of Mines. Justin teaches anatomy and physiology, introductory biology, chemical engineering and biomedical engineering courses, and does education research on the efficacy of high-structure course design with specific attention to strategies that promote student success in intro STEM courses. Justin also has a passion for faculty and future faculty development in the areas of course and curriculum design and assessment, evidence-based teaching strategies, and discipline-based education research, in which he works with individuals and departments through his independent side venture, Recumbent Education. Justin Schaefer, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks for having me, Bonnie. It's looking forward to this. Should be super fun. Speaking of super fun, I'm going to tell one of those back in the day stories. Everyone loves a good back in the day. So back in the early 90s, I when I first started learning that there was such a thing called instructional design, I was working for a computer training company. So they would a lot of the emphasis was on computer based education. And Justin, this won't surprise you, but back in the day, an idea of an interactive course was just to press the next button. Somehow I'm engaged because I've clicked a mouse on a next button. And, you know, but as I started to read some of the research and and get to know a couple people in that field, I was very new to it, but I, I continue to even to this day be intrigued by don't just tell people how to do something if you're teaching a skill, for example, but also like show them what it looks like when it's not working. So in Microsoft Excel, don't just teach me how to build a formula, but also show me what happens when you build it wrong, the kinds of error messages that might come up and that kind of thing. So I'm really intrigued by your work in high structure classes. and But want to begin with that premise of just tell me what does an unstructured class look like before we start to discover what structured classes look like. So what what do you hearken back to in back in the day when it comes to unstructured classes? Yeah, I can relate to the show on how teaching by how it doesn't work first. Just as a quick recent example, my kids are about 15 years behind in video game technology. So over Christmas, we got them a Wii with Dance Dance Revolution. Having them watch me try to dance on there, that's an exercise in how not to do something properly. My son quickly (laughs) exceeded my skills there. But when it comes to structure in the classroom, though, yeah, it's structure so darn important for getting, making sure students are able to scaffold their learning before class, in class, and after class. Not all students need it. Some students might be doing just fine with the traditional, maybe unstructured class. But we know from evidence, lots of research now shows that this type of structure does help students, not only all students, 
students do better, but helps some students do even better than they than otherwise. So, but an unstructured course, sure. How could what could this look like, right? So the first word that comes to my mind with an unstructured course is confusion, right? So you you what you go to the website. Let's say it's a modern class. You got Canvas or another LMS. You go to that website. It just is like the default look of Canvas. You have all the links on the left. Half of them you don't use. You don't know what's where to go. Um, it's kind of like when you make a figure on Excel and it's the default color scheme and axes and it looks like, ugh, you know, right? So that's kind of what I get that feeling of the ugh, when I see a Canvas page like that, which I don't see many like that, to be fair. But, you know, if as a student side, you go in, you don't really know where to go. Okay, well, I need my lesson slides for today. You, maybe you go to the files link, but there's all these folders. You don't know which one to go to, but maybe you find the right one. And it's just a list of PDFs with numbers, like lesson one, lesson two, and no real idea of when to use them. Do you print them out ahead of time or they post it after, right? So a lot of confusion from just the gate entryway of, of that. You know, it might, it might not even be a welcome to the class with how to get started. Um, in class, then you show up. And again, if you might not be totally prepared on what the topic is, there's probably not learning objectives or learning outcomes for the day. So you don't really know, you know, it doesn't have to be like my daughter's third grade class where they write the schedule on the board or anything. But you know, even like a early slide doesn't tell you necessarily what the plan is for the day. The lesson might be picking up, up halfway from the past lesson, which, you know, I'm guilty of that too. I run out of time, but it might just be kind of a little jilted and you're not sure where to go and what's coming. Um, um, and just another thing with that confusion can be lack of communication. You know, you're not totally sure as a student when assignments are due. You're not sure what is on the assignment even, you know. So sometimes when a, a faculty might say to their students, oh, we'll read chapter six. I have to read all of chapter six? Do I read just the sections in bold? Do I skip the figures, right? So there's just an overabundance of information and it's hard to navigate in an unstructured course. So I think that's a, a problem with that. And from my own experience with teaching in this model, I've been trained in high structure kind of from the get-go. I was in these postdoc, one of these postdoctoral programs called IRACTA is the big global name of it the NIH. My program specifically was called Spire with, at North Carolina. And so I was trained in evidence-based teaching strategies and course design methodologies. I also had the lovely benefit of being there with Kelly Hogan, and she took me under her wing and helped guide me through the process. But when I first taught my class, first time ever was at North Carolina A&T State University in Greensboro. It was a, it was kind of a high-structured class, but it was my first time, right? So I, I had pre-class stuff, and I'll get more into this a little bit later probably about what this means, but I had some pre-class work. I had to a lot of, you know, active learning in class, some homework after class. So I'm following that model, but brand new instructor, confidence is kind of low and, you know, how to get this all done. So at the very end of the class, I had a survey and I asked students a bunch of stuff, but one of the questions was, what's the most important thing you learned about this class? And, you know, a lot of the students said things like, well, the most important thing I learned was about cellular respiration or how nutrition works. This was an introductory biology class. But one student, I'll never forget this, they said in the, they said in the survey, the most important thing I learned in this class was to never, ever take another class with you again. I'll never forget that. So even though I, I like to think I was using structure properly, again, novice in structure, I had a lot to learn. Mm. I know we're going to be looking more at sort of the before, during, and after, but you said something that really sparked my curiosity. And that was, I mean, just just my my interactions with you prior to today's conversation, it's almost like you've been using high structure with me and, and vice versa. You, you are a fun person. You you are energizing. You're you have a wonderful sense of humor. And and I like to, I like to I like to picture myself that students come into my classes and go like, wait a minute, I'm not used to 
seen movie clips from Zootopia in my business classes, which I, I just finished uh, giving some feedback to students on. So that the, I was like, what did you notice? What did you wonder about that? And so I was like, oh, that Zootopia clip. It was really interesting to think about. And so I was like, yes, I did it. You know what I mean? That, but, but at the same time, I know that I can, Justin, be a little bit too much of a free spirit. So I find the tension between I want to surprise. I want to delight. I want to get them curious. I want to make them think. I want to bring out some of the emotions. I've been inspired by Sarah Rose Kavanaugh's work around the importance of emotions in learning. But at the same time, I can confuse people, Justin, because my mind does not work at all in a linear way. So what I've what I for myself have just tried to get better about at the very least number things. So I've I've just started experimenting with you know, 10 lessons and 10 challenges and really trying to simplify what might show up in the calendar and canvas. That's something I'm really experimenting with now. But I find myself thinking a lot about making the title of it intriguing versus having the title of whatever it is be descriptive. So I don't know, do you run into that of like, how can we have things simultaneously without the title being so long that, you know, in any learning management system or any PowerPoint slide would be rendered meaningless? How do we navigate these two tensions, the unpredictable with the structure? Yeah, I don't know. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a yeah, great, great questions and thoughts there, you know, and I appreciate your students like Zootopia. It's a good one for sure. <laughs> I run, um, I, I like to use like mid-90s movie references, totally over their heads. I, I'm getting yes. too old. It doesn't work anymore. So but with the structure though, yeah, it's a cool point because it's really not, has nothing to do with the content, honestly, you know, the structure, it, it's more about just how the course itself is set up. So, right. So high structure course design it really came out of biology, education, research, Scott Freeman, Mary Pat Wenderoth were the two champions of this in the late 2008, nine, 10 range. And um, that's where I started out and you know, learning from them. And it's about, though, the course itself and the mechanics or the shell of it, not necessarily about what you're teaching. So again, while I came out of biology and it's definitely as a toehold in STEM, you know, I also teach in chemical engineering. I use in my chemical engineering courses. I'm teaching introduction to biomedical engineering right now. I do the same thing there. So it, it's out of STEM, but I truly believe it would work in art history or work in economics or in other social sciences. I just haven't firsthand seen it. So if any listeners are out there that do it, let me know. I'd love to learn more about it. But the, when it comes to the content, so you can have the structure of the guidance of getting students ready before class by getting some basic content acquisition through reading, watching Khan Academy videos, making your own videos, having to do maybe interview somebody, a lot of ways to get content ahead of time. And then some kind of pre-class assessment. That's really the key. You know, I've learned the hard way over the years. If you don't have even a nominal amount of worth to an assignment, students are more likely not to do it, even if it's for their benefit. So having some kind of pre-class formative assessment, I usually do, I call them reading questions. So a bunch of quizzes on Canvas or other LMSs, low points, usually unlimited attempts, a lot of possibilities to earn those points. And then you get to class. And so that content, again, is, is, yeah, the beginning stuff, the before class, that might be the more descriptive, the more boring, if you will, like the more rote things. So as an example, when I teach introductory biology, 
before class, I can have students read or watch a video about the organelles of the cell, parts of the cell, right? Then when I get to class, I don't have to talk about that, right? I don't have to go over the basics. I'll still lecture. I'm not an anti-lecture guy. I'll still do it. I just have a new word for it. I don't call it lecturing anymore. I call it selecturing because we're selectively lecturing about things that mm. are important. We're not lecturing over the basic things that you can get from the reading ahead of time, perhaps, or a video ahead of time. But that leaves more time then for that creative part. You know, it leaves more time for the creativity, for the bursts of energy, for the enthusiasm, for the other Pixar movie clips. I know, I think Zootopia was DreamWorks though, but you know what I mean? <laughs> so for those different types of things, and I'm a big case study guy. So I love having narratives in the classroom. And those are definitely across disciplines, not only STEM. And the reason I like them is because it brings real people in, real things in real stories. It could be fictional too, but you're getting other people involved and students are learning about a real world context, a real world problem. And, and across STEM, I find them very useful. I even came up with a new thing that I call pod cases. So, right, we're all listening to podcasts right now. I hope you're podcast fans. Uh, I like case studies, put them together. What do you get? You get a pod case. So on my website for my for my business, Recombinant Education, I have a list of resources for pod cases available for you to download and check them out that are have podcast episodes intertwined with actual content knowledge to tell a story through the class. So that's really where your creativity can shine, I think, with the high structure model. So the structure is kind of the wrapping around if you you will, then what happens on the gooey inside in class, that's where you as the instructor and your personality shines. I appreciate you telling me I'm fun and outgoing, maybe. I don't always feel that way, but thank you. But in class, right, that's my kind of performance space. It's the closest I'm going to get to stand-up comedy is being in the classroom. I can't stay up that late at night to do a real set. So, you know, <laughs> I, that's where I can shine there. But even if you're not like that, if you're a little more introverted, which believe me, I am too, Ask me to return something to Coles. No way. It's never going to happen. So I'm very socially awkward and anxious. But um, if you're like that in the classroom too, you can still use high structure, have your own personality come out, however that might be, and use creativity to help students explore the, the content knowledge you're trying and the skills you're trying to help them develop. And then since you brought up the before, the during, how about the after? What are some of the strategies we might be thinking about employing to keep that engagement going? What are you thinking about for the after part? Yeah. So for the after part, and the, the key word through all three steps is alignment, which we from education research and also evidence-based teaching and SOTO, we think of as connecting the pieces through a class, tying it all back to learning objectives, using backwards design, perhaps. So with the after, then you're building on what happens before class and in class. So before class, you can bring in that basic kind of lower level blooms, remembering, understanding knowledge base. In class, we're doing a bunch of active learning to practice that, whether it's individual group work, I'm a big clicker guy, you know, anything you need to do. And then after class, you're going to build on that further. So you're going to have maybe a weekly homework set. If you're going to do a weekly online quiz, although those are more traditional in STEM as types of assessments, uh, this semester in my introduction to biomedical engineering class, I'm trying to go more of the as the term goes, authentic assessment route. So I still have a high structure course. They do pre-class reading guides and reading questions. We do a lot of active learning in class, but on the back end, I don't have weekly homeworks and weekly in-class quizzes like I might do in my introductory thermodynamics course. Instead, I'm having them write a National Science Foundation graduate research fellowship proposal over the course of the semester with lots and lots and lots of checkpoints. So students are applying what they're learning in class, developing their own proposal. We also have some smaller design homework assignments. So I'm trying to merge now the traditional high structure model, which is based on 
you know, think of these large intro STEM courses. I used to be at UC Irvine. I would teach intro bio there, 440 students at a time. I like to think of it as 880 eyeballs at a time. <laughs> so you have your quizzes, your exams, your traditional assessments. But now I'm trying to add in the authentic flavor of assessment on top of the traditional high structure. And it's, you know, it's only been two weeks, but it's been going great so far with class. I have about 65 students and we're having a blast together. Boy, I love how emblematic you are of that that you've been doing this for a while. You got to learn from some of the best in this in this field and really be inspired and influenced by them. And yet here you are experimenting. And spoiler alert on my recommendations, I'm going to be sharing about some things that I've been experimenting with too. And I love hearing from someone who I just get the sense that we're never done, that it's not like you have it all figured out, not like I have it all figured out. It's that that willingness to gather data by failing and having some things not go well and then go, okay, well, that didn't go well. Um, And speaking of failure, something else I've been intrigued about, and it's a tension that I see in my own teaching, where when I would find some failure points, so you think about, you know, I have gotten better at high structure and have learned along the way from so many people that have come on this podcast. So I might go like, that didn't go well. Sometimes I'll try to fix it too much because sometimes it's actually through the struggle that the most powerful learning happened. So I'm a big believer. I loved getting a chance to interview from UCLA, Robert Bjork, a memory researcher. And he taught, he has this quote, which I'll never forget, which is kind of ironic if you think about it. And he says, forgetting is the friend of learning. So I'm always trying to remind myself, like, like yes, some of the struggle I should reduce. I should reduce if there's something that's confusing about the structure of my course, which is why I always ask at the end, what did you think about how things were structured? Got some good feedback and, and I'm already incorporating. I mean, I just continue to to draw on that kind of thing. So if the structure isn't, if the struggle isn't related to the what I'm attempting to facilitate, then you got to get rid of that, right? But sometimes that struggle is actually the most key. How do you navigate that as you think through your classes to where you actually could streamline it or scaffold it too much such that you render too smooth of a a path toward that learning? Sure. Yeah. So that's, that's a great point. I don't think the structure necessarily guarantees success because it's the students ultimately have to put the work in to earn that grade, to earn that outcome, right? I like to show Calvin and Hobbes a lot in class. And my first day of class, every semester, every class, I show one where Calvin's talking to his teacher, Miss Wormwood, and she basically says something about, you know, well, you get out what you put in, right? So, so it really comes in that, but it helps to, in a way, level things out and norm everything for the students. Because especially if you're a, a first-gen student, like I was, my first day of college at Penn State, you know, giant school, Maybe this happens a lot, but I ended up at the football stadium, not at my introductory chemistry class because I was so big and I didn't know what classes to take. You know, there's all these issues you come into. I didn't know how to study. I didn't know how to prepare. So you have those challenges that you might come in with because you don't have that prior experience. So the structure helps get you ready, but you don't necessarily have to do it all either. And the primary example of this is a reading guide. So this is, again, inspiration from Kelly is that I've I've written these now for all my classes. I have them on my website as well for many textbooks. And I've I published on these two in um, CBE Life Science Education on their efficacy because I also do deeper work on the side here. But the reading guide is a way to help students with transparency with their reading. So I always tell students this every semester too. I always tell them, I want to know what you know, 
not what you think I want you to know. Okay. So to me, transparency is huge. And so the reading guide is the first step of that. Cause you got this giant book, right. With all this content or giant website, whatever you're having them read, the reading guide helps narrow it down. It doesn't have to be a book. It can be a video. It can be a journal article, whatever it is. It helps narrow it down by telling them, look at this specific figure, read this passage, answer this question. Here's some terms that are underlined, but these are optional. And I found them to be more useful optional because they can be a couple pages long, you know, once a day or once a week. I'm a, I'm a weekly model now guy, but you, you don't have to require them and students have them there as a resource. So if you require them, those students feel like, oh, it's just another thing to do. Check the box, you know, and they move on. So by, by making this as a resource, I show them the data from my paper that shows the more often students do these, the better they do. So it's a way to help provide the structure help students along who might need it, but doesn't force everyone to do it necessarily either. But also with the idea of structure kind of being too structured, as you were saying, again, it's kind of independent of the content. So right now with my biomedical engineering class, my homework assignments, which are in the after class phase of high structure, they're completely open-ended, right? Our first homework is going to be designing a recombinant protein. It's up to you. You pick the vector, you pick the protein, you pick the expression system, the purification system, right? Next one's going to be designing a biomaterial for an implant, totally open-ended. So they're still going to struggle with that. And I've actually early on had some conversations with students, even for the the research proposal I mentioned earlier, they're a little nervous because they're not used to that open-endedness aspect. So even though it's a high structure course, that open-endedness piece is totally prevalent. And in engineering, right, that I do, design is a big piece. So that's a natural thing to happen there. But also in engineering, we like organization. I love spreadsheets. My wife tells me I should have been an accountant. I'd make more money, right? Because I like (laughs) spreadsheets so much. So I like organization. I like structure. And that's what my students like too. They like the predictability of things. Think about maybe your own kids or definitely my own kids in the summer or over a break, like winter break, it gets a little long. They don't have a normal structure their day. Things sometimes uh, go a little south. So having that structure as humans, I think, is good too. And But it still allows for creativity, allows for inspiration, allows for the struggle with learning and documenting the learning through various forms of assessment. You mentioned using a lot of Calvin and Hobbes, and we also have talked about how hysterical you are. I can't. I also, I also <laughs> feel like, be funny, be funny right now. I... I <laughs> How much of that is planned? I mean, when you're when you're thinking through how to structure a course, are you thinking through? I don't I don't know if you're familiar with the article and the research around a time time for telling, but is the idea that um, researchers Bransford and Schwartz, and by the way, speaking of forgetting things, forgetting being the friend of learning, this is maybe my second time actually saying their names without stumbling over like, let me go look up what their names are again. But I first heard about this from Derek Breff. And that's why I remember Derek Breff's name and not the researchers. But the idea (laughs) that and the example that gets given often is the Diet Coke and Mentos, that if you want to get me really curious about why when you put Mentos inside of Diet Coke, and you shake it, that explosion happens, but doesn't necessarily happen with regular Coke. But rather than start with the lecture on the chemical processes that are or are not happening to have these two different results, well, let's just try it out and let's get Diet Coke spraying all over your backyard, which, true story, I was actually doing a keynote for the Lilly Conference and had mentioned I was only speaking anecdotally and had never experienced this. And a very, very kind faculty member went out and bought me Diet Coke and Mentos and brought it to me before 
I left so I could go home and experiment with the kids in the backyard. But anyway, so a time for telling is you get me all curious. Why is this explosion happening with the Diet Coke, but it's not with the regular like and then I'm ready for the more dense. Then you have my curiosity can uh, help me pay that attention that's needed. And I'm more, their research shows more, more patient, more able to tolerate. Uh, tolerate's probably a terrible word to use here, but to have the persistence, I think, is the more precise word to be able to navigate that. So I, what comes to mind for you as you think through those planned curiosity boosters or, or bringing in some of the the emotions or or getting people to predict and wonder and be curious about stuff? Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, absolutely makes sense. I just didn't know the title. Yeah. <laughs> like you said. Yeah. I mean, and again, that's kind of why I like case studies so much, you know, and now, right, you can get them to the National Science Teacher Association. Those of you in STEM, if you're in business, you have your other homes for your case studies. But, you know, that at least for the STEM based ones, again, you got a story. So you hook students with some kind of narrative, some kind of situation and maybe a video or things. And then you get them curious about it. And then you kind of, OK, well, just can take a break now. We're going to get into the kind of the, the core learning objectives for the day, look at some data, do whatever. And then we'll come back to the story at the end. So the one I learned my lesson, though, with this kind of related to the Diet Coke and Mentos. So there's a great case study that I borrowed, and I apologies to the authors of it. I forget your names. It was published at the time when the National Center for Case Study Teaching the Sciences was at the University of Buffalo, hosted there. It's a case study on cellular respiration in the body and energy. And basically, the question was, do energy drinks actually give you energy? Right? So because energy in biology means something, but energy on a can of Red Bull means something else, right? It means like stimulation. So to demonstrate this, um, this was my first class where student learned never to take another class with me again. Mm-hmm. I chugged the whole can of Red Bull at 930 in the morning in front of 100 students at North Carolina A&T. I was sweating, palpations of the heart. I was getting faint within 10 minutes. I'm like, oh, this isn't going well, everyone. I don't know if this is energy or not, but I feel something, you know, but then by the time that was when we introduce it, you know, and then we get to the end and we talk about the mechanisms, what does it mean for molecules to give energy in the cell? And then the end, we look at the nutrition facts for Red Bull, or in this case, we show them the can and um, there's no, it was a diet one, right? There's actually no calories in it. So there's nothing that gives true biological energy is just all stimulation with caffeine and other things. So yeah, don't do that again, at least not for me. <laughs> not I advised. Be careful with coffee intake, you know, and things like that nowadays. But yeah, doing some kind of demo, some kind of video, some kind of story, you know, even I, I like to talk about my own life a lot again and my own kids' experiences when I was in their shoes, tell stories. And because again, that, that builds that interest up. It, it kind of, but you don't tell it all right away. That's what I've learned too, right? You can kind of set them up you know, a little cliffhanger. If it was like a Netflix series, you got to stop at a cliffhanger and then you come with the next one. By But by the end of the lesson, I promise you, we'll find out what happens. And uh, whenever whenever I say, okay, well, you want to know what happens? And they say, yeah. I say, okay, we will find out in 30 minutes. Sometimes I'll get some audible, oh, I'm like, oh, good. They're involved. They're invested. So that, that's a fun way to tell it. And you again, you, you can do this. This is all the in-class part, right? You can do this however you want with whatever strategy you want. You do this online with videos. You can do it async, sync. It applies across the board with high structure. But that in-class piece is really where, again, you as an instructor, your own personality, your own niche, your own stories can shine and let, let that come out and then let your students see that side of you. Boy, that example is so powerful in terms of you're, you're combining so many techniques that the research would seem to indicate really heightened that learning because we, in almost every case, unless we have the attention, the learning isn't going to happen. So the ability to have someone 
persist in their curiosity about something, whether you're asking them to predict, what do you think happens if we do X? Or what do you think happened in the past? And being able to bring in multimedia. I've done that with podcast episodes before where play the first part of it. And then what do you think happened to the currency fluctuations in this country after these researchers did this? Okay, talk about it. And then, but the idea to then say, okay, we'll wait. And then if you get those audible groans, then you know you've actually been able to help. You were reminding me of something else. And I want to ask you quick a a little bit more about this before we get to the recommendation segment. But you were talking about being a clicker guy. And of course, clickers are, you don't have to go far into any book about how to make use of clickers to, to have these kind of prediction activities. And then what do you think happens? And I think it's fun to consider what happens when you show everyone else what the words are versus or what the answers are like as people are answering them because we're so influenced by what other people think versus when you hide them and then sometimes you might hide them at first and then release them and then start to see all the answers go over I mean it's just it's fun how those kinds of techniques can you can become so playful but what I hope people are hearing from your stories is that yes you're using your natural some of your natural gifts that you have but you're you're doing it over time. Like, you know, oh, that time, oh, if I could have timed that a little, oh, I'm going to go five minutes later next time. Or I didn't really explain that part of the instructions and you're building upon it, but it is very intentional. It yeah. looks effortless. It looks like, oh my gosh, like, the, oh, I didn't even think about that. Oh, he just said this, but but it's over time being willing to experiment and then go, oh, okay. And then also being able to use some of these approaches in other ways. So you talk about your pod cases. Okay, so you built your first one and then you see what kind of works with that. Okay, well, now I'm going to do another episode of the pod case and then just constantly building it. So let's talk a little bit about clickers before we get to recommendations. When you say clickers, I'm curious, I'm guessing you probably don't mean physical clickers, although maybe you do today. Are you using physical clickers? Or are you using some kind of an app on people's phones or how are you approaching that? Yeah, we're we're a mix on our campus. So we are an iClicker campus. So we still have a lot of our first year students using the physical remotes, mm. but our students have been navigating to, because after their first year, they usually get rid of it. So then they buy the app when they have me or someone else in their sophomore, junior, senior year. And yeah, so it's a mix. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to email you separately because I think I literally have 75 iClickers from back in the day. I don't know how long ago they are, but I feel so environmentally irresponsible. I just don't know what to do with these. So we'll, we'll chat We'll chat separately and be like, can I mail these? Are these still useful to anyone out there? Would be a fun conversation to have. So oh, You can recycle them through Apple or something, right? I did that with our old, old broken phones. You drop them in a, mailbag, a mailbox and they're gone. But um, yeah, but the app versions now are so cool because they have all these different question types. You know, and that's what I'm really trying to push here with my own students and my colleagues. And then I also do workshops for faculty and future faculty on best practices with teaching and course design. And one of the workshops I give is on best practices with clicker usage and trying to make use of all the bells and whistles, right? Because whether you're a campus that has a platform that's quote unquote free, it's probably part of the tech fee, you're rolled in the tuition somehow, or if students are paying out of pocket, you got to make sure you justify the use of all these uh, tech ed tech tools out there and how they're worth it. So all like this Wednesday, of class this week, um, we used clickers really for the first time in this semester. And I used all five different question types, my first five questions of the semester to show the students the different variability you can do, including like touch the screen now, target questions, things like that. And I asked students, have any of you used any of these other than multiple choice before? And like four students' hands went up. 
And I said, oh, great. Well, what class did you use them in? They said, oh, your class last semester. <laughs> so, you know, un un unfortunately, they're still not widespread, but it's now, again, with the app-based clickers, it, it makes it so much more engaging. Also, right, students tend not to forget their phones very often, so you don't have to worry about that with accountability issues. Like with the physical clicker, you, you forget it. Batteries fall out, they break, you know, but that's another kind of a segue going back to high structure is the uh, forgivability of this kind of system, right? Because when you're thinking of structure and before class, you know, frequent assignments, before class, in class stuff, after class assignments, you got to be flexible, right? I tell my students life doesn't carry you in college or not. Life just keeps moving on. So I, I'm a big proponent of the dropped assignment system. So you get to drop four out of 16 pre-class assignments. You get to drop 10% of your clicker scores, you know, whatever it might be. You allow for that flexibility and then students still can go back and make things up if they want. But again, it's dropped. So they don't have to email you. They don't have to let you know, oh, I, I can't be here today. Or they don't come up after class with their answers written on a note card. Here's my clicker answers for the day. I say, no, don't worry about it. You get to drop it. No big deal. You know, so it makes it easier for them. Cuts down email traffic for you and worrying about things like that. So just being flexible is something I've learned over the years too. You talked about kind of growing into it, you know, and it, it's, I appreciate the effortless uh, claim there, Bonnie. I, I do feel in my my space, like I feel like I found my calling, if you will, being in front of people in an academic setting, whether it's students or whether it's in front of other faculty in a workshop setting. I love them both. I feel very comfortable. But it definitely takes time. It definitely takes time to do that, you know, but the experience is what lets someone get to this point. So I've been doing this about 12 years now. I just kind of know what might happen. And if it does happen, I don't freak out anymore, whereas I used to freak out. So you just kind of roll with it a little bit more. That's one of my colleagues' mottos with new classes, and let's roll with it. So I kind of just, I can do that. I don't I don't get as stressed as I, believe me, there's stress, but it's just a little, stresses are in different places now. The, the classroom experience, because of the structure, honestly, helps me manage it more. Students like that structure. They'll, like when I teach multiple sections of a class and they've had me before, my section fills up first. First, I like to think it's because of my charming personality and stupid jokes, but what they actually tell me it's because of the structure. Like they, they love how it's set up. I've even had students go on to future classes that I don't teach in junior year and say, oh, hey, where are the reading guides? Where are the reading questions assignments? And the, they'll, the instructor will tell me like, what's going on with this? And I'll say, oh, well, <laughs> yeah, that's what I do. But I tell the students, if your future classes don't have this, you've now developed metacognitive skills. You've developed surly skills or um, being able to develop your own learning and modulate your own learning on your own, self-regulated learning. And you can handle classes that have lower structure. You, I'm, I've set you up for future success in managing your study skills and ways you approach courses, whether you know it or not. When you spoke about that flexibility and the ability to drop some assignments, in, in case anyone listening doesn't get some of the nuance out of that, I was thinking as you were sharing back to what the writing across the curriculum programs often say, which is writing to learn, learning to write, writing to learn, learning to write. And you were reminding me of that a little bit. Our our son is in middle school and is, is taking a math class and they got their report cards back. And I'm sure it's a best practice for podcasters to tell stories about their kids' grades without their them being here. But nonetheless, it got a very, very good grade. Um, nothing, nothing to be concerned at all about. I was intrigued because just just because I'm curious how the course design went that he had lower scores on his quizzes and exceptionally good scores on his tests so I wasn't at all harping on what's up, what's up with these quizzes but I was kind of curious you know how he made use he says yeah well you know we're and it sounds like this this math teacher has that same same kind of flexibility so he had he had already figured out that and I I love this because 
sadly, most of us are throughout too high a percentage of our learning. It is going to be how do you game the system? You know, okay, well, I knew those didn't count, so I could do that. Like, and and I, the way that he described it was like the game was kind of not really central for him. He said, oh, those quizzes helped me learn, but I really need to spend the time then on the, the exam. So it was, I, I guess, sort of it was described a little bit as, but he's figured out where his time is best spent. And his time in taking the quizzes, he could relax a little bit. He didn't need it to earn the grade he was aiming for. Because they were just helping him learn and then really figure out how to focus his attention for the exams, which were weighted more and had the higher stakes. It was just really cool to think, you know, when we structure these things with the low stakes, that they really can facilitate that learning without the pressure, which really doesn't help heighten heighten the learning. That At least that's what the scholarship of teaching and learning body of evidence would seem to indicate. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that stress that's associated with these high stakes assessments and it, but having those quizzes or homeworks to help scaffold and get you ready for that is, is really key. But I, I've actually moved away from the midterm model, even finals. Now I'm kind of off and on for doing final exams, rather more. One of my one colleague, Adrian Williams at UC Irvine told me once, like with the high structure model, instead of having these big peaks of stress, we're just trying to normalize that stress and smooth it out through the entire 15 weeks. So it's a little bit of stress constantly, but not these big spikes. But yeah, it, it helps out for sure there. But then they also have like the more of the alternative grading approaches. My colleague here at mine is Becky Swanson. She's working on the mastery-based grading for a linear algebra class and got some really cool findings there to show that if students really know these big outcomes and they get multiple attempts through different avenues to demonstrate their mastery, that's fine. And she's doing it through a combination of homework and quizzes in class, you know, but, but giving students that whatever grading model you choose, right. There's a million of them out there these days, as long as you make it okay for students to fail and you give them that chance to fail, because that's how you talk about early failing, forgetting and things like that, right. It's okay. That's how we learn. It's how we grow. My daughter's kindergarten teacher, I'll talk about my kids too, right. My daughter's kindergarten teacher said, you know, whenever you make a mistake, or fail, your brain gets bigger. And it's true, right? I'm, to this day, I'm trying to learn new things. I'm trying to, to try to new things in my own personal life. You know, this over the summer, I started learning how to shoot a recurve bow. Just totally sucked at it at first, still pretty bad at it, but I'm a little bit better. So things like that, you're going to fail, you're going to assess, you're going to revisit it and get better. Same thing with learning in the classroom. So just a lot of different things you can do as long as you create that environment that it's okay to do that. And it's okay because we're in this together. We're trying to learn together to, be, to become better students and pursue whatever aspirations you have after college. This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And speaking of failure, I hope I'm not failing. I attempt to not recommend the same thing twice. I love it when guests do that because it means it's a book I really should read or a podcast I really should listen to, but I try not to. In almost 10 years, I've failed at this once that I'm aware of. I don't. I hope I'm not about to fail again, but I want to recommend Alan Levine's Cool Tech. And his Cool Tech, I'm going to link over to the page where you can learn it, but you could follow it on Mastodon, for example. I follow it through what's called an RSS feed. So every time Alan Levine posts about new technology, it comes right into my RSS reader, which I use in a reader, and I'm off and running, getting to experiment. And I'm at about half the time that which is probably not a great number for like I just want to play with everything that he recommends but he's so good at helping me discover cool technology and so speaking of cool technology recommended through Alan Levine's cool tech I discovered something called I 
he helped me discover something called Leah Script. So I need to start by explaining what Markdown is very briefly, which is hard to do, but Markdown is just a way of writing where it's plain text. Everything is super, super plain text. So it's kind of future proof because as much as images change over years and file formats change over years, text kind of doesn't change. Text is text. There are letters, there are symbols, etc. And so Markdown is a is a as a way of writing that I've gotten used to for podcast show notes and for blog posts. And then I can copy it and paste it into lots of different formats like rich text or HTML, all that stuff. So I'm familiar with Markdown. LeaScript is something that sits on top of Markdown and makes your, basically creates for you what I could best describe as if an open textbook and open presentations and open slide decks all went and, uh, got together and started a family together. <laughs> so it sits on top of there and and basically takes a markdown file and turns all your headings into navigatable menus off to the left, like you'd expect to see in a, in a textbook. Oh, I can skip straight to the section I'm interested in. It has a full text search throughout your entire open textbook, open presentations, which is something that today's learning management systems typically don't have. And I haven't experimented with this yet, but it can be embedded in this. By the way, LeaScript was started by some scholars in Germany, and they're embedding it in, as a SCORM-compliant course, meaning it'll talk to a learning management system. So if you're using something like, they, I believe they mentioned Canvas as one of the ones. I believe they mentioned Moodle as another one that they've experimented with. But then, then you could actually score some of the quizzes that people take along the way as they're reading the books. So LeaScript is something I am still early in experimentations on. I've learned a ton. I've been challenged a ton. And one of the things, my last recommendation is that just because something can be done doesn't mean you should try learning it. So I mentioned that LeaScript, you can actually produce the same text from the same markdown file as an open textbook, as a presentation, as your actual slides that you might use in class. They have this weird thing, not weird thing that I'm curious about where you could share a QR code to your class and they could actually join you at that exact moment in time. So there's all these things that you could do. And at some point, I just had to cut myself off. No, you're not going to build your slides this way. That's like, no, you're not going to do that. No, you're not going to build like, like you're just going to build an open textbook, which I've done before in the past. I've used press books. And so this time I thought you, you can build this and, and curate and collect some openly licensed content to place in there. And the Zootopia clips that Justin and I talked about earlier, they're all in there waiting to be had. But just this idea of the patience that it takes to go, you know, you're experimenting with a lot right now. Settle yourself down and just you got to you got to call it at some point like this is <laughs> this is what I'm doing for this defined period of time so I'm having fun continuing to be fed technology through Alan Levine and so many others that are doing open learning out loud on on the web which is so inspiring and then Leah script but I'm experimenting with specifically haven't experimented with all of it but I'm having to settle myself down and say just because something can be done uh, you need to hold off and just just hone in on a few things that you're going to be playing with right now so those are my recommendations. And Justin, I'll share, uh, pass it over to you for whatever you'd like to recommend. 
Yeah, sure. No, that's that sounds cool. I haven't heard of that one. It sounds a little maybe too Cody for me. I'm not much of a programmer, but it sounds like maybe it's accessible to the masses. I'm like, <laughs> so I'll have to check it out. Yeah, I'm kind of going the opposite way with my recommendation in the analog world, if you will, and uh, product out there. I just recently got. So I had a birthday last year, ended with a zero. <laughs> Things start to break down a little bit over the years. So I got some bad heels. I can't run anymore, which really bummed me out. So instead, I've, I've taken up rucking, which my wife affectionately calls walking through the airport. It's my exercise. So, right, you just put some weight in your backpack and go. So, and we live up in the mountains here in Colorado, about well, the smaller side of the mountains. Forgive me, true mountain people. Uh, we're about 8,700 feet up. But, you know, we got a lot of hills. Our roads are all dirt. So I like to walk now and that and put my backpack on. But I just had like a crappy backpack with literally dumbbell weights in the back. It's on your lower back lumbar. It really hurts. So I discovered from a company called Go Ruck. It's a ruck plate carrier backpack. And it, it holds a, I got a 45 pound piece of iron. It's well designed, made in America. Put it on your backpack. It's high up on your back, tight and strapped, really nice. And uh, I don't get those creaks and pains in my lower back, but then you get the extra load. So given the great workout for the walk, I like to listen to podcasts when I'm doing that. I won't be listening to this podcast while I do it. Those I don't, I'm afraid to hear how it sounds, <laughs> but I'll be listening to other things while I ruck and walk through the imaginary airport as my wife makes fun of me. But hey man, I got to stay strong somehow. And uh, it doesn't hurt my heels anymore like running does. So I'd highly recommend the uh, Rock plate carriers, what I'm I'm into these days. And then I hope you all check out my website too. So my side venture is called Recombinant Education. As I mentioned earlier, I do faculty workshops, student workshops, consulting work. And I'm also working on a book, hopefully coming out late this year through Macmillan and the scientific teaching series. It's going to be all about high structure course design. So if you're interested in what you heard about today, you're going to have a lot more details there, but I have a lot of freely available stuff on the website too. So I hope you take a peek. Oh, I hope people go take a peek. And I already told Justin, you know, a lot of people will share their books a little early with me so we can get you back on the show because I, I loved learning from you today. I'm so grateful for your time and generosity and so grateful to Kelly Hogan, who shared a little bit about you and some of the things that you're doing and recommended you as a guest. So I always love when any former guests can recommend someone to come on the show. So grateful for my continued friendship with Kelly and her connecting me with you. Thank you so much for today and for your book in the future. I can already get so excited about what it's going to offer us and for teaching me today about rucking, which I have never heard of before and kind of intrigued by this. You've piqued my curiosity. Thank you so much for your time today, Justin. Great. Thanks for having me, Bonnie. And I'm glad you're looking forward to things. And my, my book will have stupid jokes, just like I said, orally today, too. So okay. I, I hope you take a look at it someday. <laughs> and uh, thanks again. This was a blast. Thanks once again to Justin Schaefer for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. Today's episode was produced by me, Bonnie Stahoviak. It was edited by the ever-talented Andrew Kroger. Podcast production support was provided by the amazing Sierra Priest. If you've been listening to the show for a while and haven't signed up for the email updates, head over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. In addition to being able to receive the most recent episodes show notes, you will also receive some other resources that don't show up in the regular show notes. So head over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.